You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'll be your host on this episode, Dr. Mike Brazier, and this is uh, this is a first for us. We have uh, five guests on this episode. I don't think we've ever had five guests, and so this is going to be uh, well. This is going to be fun. I, I'm certain of that. You know, earlier this summer, uh, this is we're recording here in December of 2023. Earlier this summer, I had the unique opportunity to go visit a research camp on the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta in Alaska. It's the first time I had ever been to that location. It's incredibly important geography for breeding waterfowl. The research camp that I went to has been in existence for several decades. I'm going to get the guest to talk a little bit more about the specifics of that, but it's a location where brant have been a keen focus of a lot of research. We've learned a tremendous amount about individual brant and uh, the individual heterogeneity, as we call it, in brant reproductive strategies and decisions and migration uh, patterns and decisions. And so it's a one of the many long-term waterfowl research camps that uh, that exist out there. And today on this episode, we have two graduate students and three 
uh, of the assistants that were there this summer. And it is a landscape that really uh, I was in awe of and just arriving, the experience. It was phenomenal uh, from pretty much every aspect of it. We were literally on the edge of on the edge of the the Bering Sea, um, the the folks here will be able to talk much more intelligently about the exact geography of where we were. But but literally right there, it was a, a fantastic experience. And this is an opportunity to reunite these five people that I had the had the pleasure of spending about I think it was eight days with in this incredibly remote location. Um, and I wanted to hear their wanted y'all our audience to hear their stories about that experience. Explain a little bit about this geography and the research that they're doing and the answer, the questions that it's helping us answer. So so uh, settle in. We're going to have a fun roundtable conversation about a whole host of things related to the uh, research up there on the YK Delta. And to start this, I'm going to go around the table here and just ask each of the folks to introduce themselves. Uh, Jordan, I'll start with you. Yeah. Well, my name's uh, Jordan Thompson. I'm a PhD student at Colorado State University in Dr. Dave Kuhn's lab. Um, I I'm originally from Western New York. I grew up here. I did my undergrad at SUNY ESF in Syracuse, and I did my master's degree at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point on emperor geese on the Yukon Delta. So I've been working up in that region for about six years now. Appreciate that, Jordan. We'll come back to you here in a, here in a moment. Uh, I'm just going to go around my screen. Jacob, you're next. Yeah, uh, I'm Jacob Tepsa. I am currently a fourth-year undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Uh, I have a broad background with fire ecology, waterfowl ecology, um, just getting my start into my career and finishing up my last semester here at Point. Thank you, Jacob. Lydia, next to you. Sure. Um, I'm Lydia Martin. I'm currently kind of like a wandering technician going around the States doing really short time stuff. I graduated from UWSP, um, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, about two years ago. Um, and since then, I've been going around. I worked in northern uh, Minnesota, doing duck banding, worked down south with um, drone stuff, and then went up to Alaska. Had uh, I had actually met Jordan in uh, during my time in the undergrad, and I'm I'm glad I was able to come out and work with them um, on this project. So thanks, Lydia. It's great to have you with us as well. And and so I'll make the observation that we've gone three for three with a connection to University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. And I can't remember enough about the remaining two guests to know if there is any connection. So I'm just going to go randomly, uh, Caroline. I do not have a connection. Unfortunately, I'm going to break the trend. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Caroline Blommel. I am a master's student at Colorado State University, also in Dave Coon's lab. So I work with Jordan on this project studying black brain ecology. I'm originally from Southwest Michigan, though, so I'll do the hand thing down here. Um, <laughs> Which people can't see on the podcast, but that's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> if you ever met anybody from Michigan, they hold up their hand to tell you where they're at. So I grew up along the lake, and I did my undergrad at Michigan State University. And I had no exposure to waterfowl, but I kind of got... I lucked out and got to do this incredible research, and now I get to be a part of this really cool project. It was a fun summer with these guys. Thanks, Caroline. And Laura. I'm saving the best for last. Yes. No. <laughs> um, so my name is Laura Wallace. I am currently a waterfowl uh, field technician here at the Forbes Biological Station in Illinois. I'm originally, yeah, from Massachusetts, I think I said that. Um, and I did my undergrad at SUNY ESF. And in January, I will start a master's position under Dr. Ricky at University of Montana. 
Yeah, and I think you met Thomas, Doctor Doctor Ricky, uh, in Alaska. Had you met Had you met Thomas before that? Nope. No. So that was a very fortuitous meeting. Uh, that was so. So Dr. Thomas Ricky and Madeline Lohman uh, went to the went to the YK Delta. Went to the research camp, sort of at the same time that I did. We met in the Anchorage uh, airport and traveled the rest of the way there. And we were there for eight or nine days. Actually, uh, Thomas and Madeline were there for like two weeks, I think. Carolyn, you and I came out together, you know, whenever we were leaving. So, so anyway, there's a lot of connections and that's a really cool development, Laura, that you were able to make there. And it led to the next step in your career as a wildlife professional. And hopefully it's going to stay waterfowl professional if I expose my bias. You certainly have a long, you, you have an interest in that for sure, right? You're working at the Illinois Natural History Survey doing some waterfowl work there right now. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, sir. I've been, um, Basically, I've been a wildlife technician for about the past three years, and it's been very waterfowl-focused. This is, you know, I'll, I'll kind of call an audible here, and and rather than go right to the right to a discussion of of the project, uh, Laura, you said that you have been. Well, I want to talk about sort of your experiences as um, as a technician in the wildlife or waterfowl space, and how that helped you sort of figure out what you wanted to do and what you wanted your next step to be. Lydia, you sort of said the same thing, that you're a wandering field technician. I don't remember if you said how long that you've been doing that, but I have a cousin who is who did that same thing. He graduated from undergraduate, and then he went and spent maybe two or three years working technician job to technician job out west, and, you know, sort of a bit of a walkabout type thing where you learn and try to figure out what it is that interests you. So, Laura, I would like for you to talk a little about your experience in that regard, and then how did you wind up at the YK Delta site? Hmm. I guess that's a pretty long story, <laughs> but I figured out that I really liked ducks during my undergrad years, and since then I've just been trying to find jobs that just give me new experiences, new skills, and meeting new people that are within the waterfowl world. So I've had jobs in New York, Ohio, Maine. Virginia, you know, all the way up to Alaska, just several states where there's just like um, a lot of different waterfowl projects to be a part of out there. And yet everybody knows everyone. So it's been great just having, you know, mentor after mentor that just uplift you in this field. And I hope it's the same with, um, you know, other species. But um, I guess I had you know, a passion for birds. But then when you when you meet all these different amazing people in in the waterfowl profession, it kind of, that is also the reason I've decided to stick with these birds. Um, but I've always had a passion for sea ducks. And so I knew I had to get up to Alaska eventually. And uh, Jordan was kind enough to give me what was like the greatest technician job I've ever had. It was, it was the best experience of my life thus far. And now I will spend, <laughs> I guess, the rest of my life chasing that chasing that dream. Like I'm definitely itching to get back up there. Oh, that's very good. Uh, Lydia, what about you in terms of uh, the the places, the technician positions that you've been in? And is there a certain theme? I can't, I know we've talked about this, but I can't remember exactly what you told me. Any, any theme like waterfowl or is you're just kind of doing a variety of different wildlife related uh, jobs? Yeah, definitely have um, a focus in waterfowl. Yeah, mostly um, they'll, we'll do 
duck banding stuff when the, during migration and such. So I've done um, mostly on the Mississippi Flyway, so Minnesota. And then um, in the winter, I went down. Alabama was drone work, um, doing waterfowl surveys from the drones. So there was some experience there. I guess I have a lot of habitat work, but it's more with um, more with like prairies and oak savannas. I kind of um, grew up in that area doing doing prairie burns on my grandparents' farm, and so uh, got interested in that work. Yeah, all that habitat work. So I'm I'm still really interested in that. I just um, I also really like working with the the animals and getting out there and meeting all these people. So yeah, mostly mostly uh, waterfowl and then some habitat work for me. Very good. And I ask those questions because oftentimes people will contact me and other folks in that work for Ducks Unlimited and they'll ask, like, how did you get into the field? What advice do you have? And the number one advice that I have is get experience, get, whether it be get experience at the undergraduate level or take a year off or in some cases, two years or three years, however long it, it takes to kind of figure out, okay, I'm satisfied with the technician position. I know what I want to do and, and move on. But yeah, get experience and, and ideally get experience in different geographies and different um, and different types of work, and so that's what led each of you to Alaska, at least in terms of the, the appeal of working in that location. Um, you know, Jacob, Lydia, and, and Laura as, as technicians on this, and of course Jordan. This was the the site of your your research. Uh, Caroline, you've you're using the data from that site as well. And uh, was this the first time you had been there this year? No, um, that's a great question. So this is the second year that I was back. Um, the first year I was here was last summer, I guess two summers ago. Um, and I was unimaginably green in terms of field experience. So I like always want to take that caveat to say that get experience, but don't be afraid to jump into things that you feel like you might be unqualified for. Because I think if people believe in you and you keep a good attitude and you stay positive and try to stay excited about where you are, I think you can really kind of change the course of wherever you end up. So this was my second summer out here. And I definitely felt like I had my feet on the ground a little bit better. But that first summer, did you spend the entire summer there? Or was it another like two weeks? No. Well, yeah. How long did you stay there that first summer? Yeah, it was interesting. So this year I was there for about six weeks. Um, and I left with you about midway through the season just before hatched. The first year that I was out, so two years ago, I was there for the second half of the season. So I got there just before Hatch and I left um, at, at for Camp Teardown. So I've now seen throughout two years, one collective breeding season. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. I forgot about you you telling me that. And now, yeah, the the piecing it together for the, the full breeding season over two years, I now recall that. So, all right, let's talk about in, in a bit more detail, the place that we're referencing here. And Jordan, I'm going to come to you and describe the, you know, give us the name of the camp, describe the location, describe just kind of briefly its history and why it's so important. And this is the site that you've been sort of serving as the crew leader for, for a couple of years. And so introduce us to the location. Yeah. So the, the work on Black Brant that we do is on the Tatakoak River, which is on the coast of Alaska on what's called the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta, which is one of the largest river deltas in Alaska. It's kind of like south of the Seward Peninsula and north of the Alaska Peninsula. So it's kind of southwestern area of Alaska. And, um, you know, the work that we do there is is really unique. I think it's especially for waterfowl in that it's a longitudinal study that's focused on a marked population of brand that's been 
studied since, um, I believe, 1986 was the first year. And the study was started by Dr. Jim Sedinger, who was then at University of Alaska Fairbanks and moved uh, to University of Nevada, Reno, and ran the project up until just a few years ago. So, you know, the project's based around a population of brant that are marked with uh, plastic bands, as well as like the classic USGS metal bands. Um, And it's longitudinal in a sense that we go there and we observe birds marked with these plastic bands year after year. Um, So we get a lot of really neat information from that, like um, reproductive investment from different birds from year to year and how that varies, as well as just kind of basic demographic information like survival rates, um, abundance, clutch sizes, and stuff like that. So um, it's really a really unique system to study in that those types of data allow us to answer questions related to kind of fundamental ecology, like um, like how does investment vary year to year in reproduction and how is that affected by the environment, but also more applied questions like how can we more accurately estimate abundance of brands or um, things like that. You know, Dr. Mark Lindbergh is a, is, has been on the Ducks Unlimited podcast a couple of times. One of his appearances were, was related to a species profile for Brandt. And we talked in, in depth at, uh, about some of the work that you described there at, at the Chautauqua. And so, yeah, I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that episode. And, and actually, there was an early, early episode with Mark about band targeting. Um, I think that may have been the first or second, may have been the first year that we did this podcast, so several years ago. But that also has some reference to the work that that occurs there at that site. And so we're not going to rehash all of the, the the research details and the things that we've learned over the years, but we'll, we'll get back to some of the research that y'all were, were conducting there and some of the things that that involved uh, on a day-to-day basis. But I would like to give people an appreciation for the remoteness of that camp. Who wants to take that? Caroline, you want to take a stab at describing the remoteness of that and and also what it was like when you arrived? Sure. I'm going to start in kind of a weird place just to say that the most remote I'd ever done a field season before this was, I mean, we were staying in a subdivision in Nevada doing black bear stuff. At least I was. And I thought that was real rugged and interesting. Um, So coming out here was, you know, it was a little bit of a shock. It was impressive. Because you, you know, I've never been to Alaska before. I'm very much a lower 48, as we most of us are, kind of person. So I'm flying out to Anchorage. I'm meeting Jim Senator for the first time in the airport, which is incredibly intimidating, but turns out he's a super nice guy. Fly out to Anchorage, fly from Anchorage to Bethel, which is another tiny city I've never heard of in Western Alaska. Fly from Bethel to Chebec, which is a village that's sort of right along the it's part of the Delta up there um, on a much, much smaller plane, which was itself in its own adventure. You have like this big seatbelt that goes over you, which I've never seen before. And you're taking off and landing on like dirt road runways. It's incredible. These pilots are amazing. So we've now taken two planes to get to where we are. And then you get in a boat on a river and in about three hours, you're at camp. Well, you left off part. You left off the oh, four, did I? yeah, you left off the four wheeler from the airport to the <laughs> boat did. in Chivat. I did. I did do that. So you <laughs> land in Chivat and then you get on a four wheeler, which takes you all the way through the village to the boat where you proceed to load up your supplies, you re fill all your water and your gas for however long until we get to go back to the village. And then you're on the river for three hours and then you're in camp. Yeah. You know, so the, it's pretty the, intense. The thing that struck me is that. 
if you're a person that likes a very rigid schedule and wants to know <laughs> what's going to happen every step of the way, <laughs> that place is not for you. And getting there is not for you. No. Um, because even, gosh, I'm tr- I, like I said, we arrived, I arrived alongside uh, Thomas and, and Madeline. And Thomas has some experience, uh, uh, Thomas Ry- uh, Ricky has some experience there. And they had flown out of Bethel earlier in the morning, and then I my flight was later uh, to get into Chivac. And I'm like, well, how do I know where to go? How am I going to get from the from the airport or from the not airport, the airplane? There is no airport. It's a couple of, of ten buildings there. And how do you get from there to the to where the boat is? And and Thomas pointed to a map, and he's like, well, you'll go up here and you'll go to this little spot and just kind of hang out. And somebody will know that you're not supposed to be there, and they'll probably try to help you out. Out and find the find where the boat is and and so we get off the plane or it's not we it was just me I was the only person on the plane I was in the Bethel and and waiting at that airport and a guy walks through and he calls out my name and raised my hand and he said okay let's go I was the only person on the plane the only thing else on that plane was like some food supplies bread and cookies and whatever else um, so I was like this is real. This is, yeah. And and so then we get there and I'm just kind of standing around. I'm like, okay, well, I think Thomas and, and Madeline may come pick me up, but no, they're nowhere in sight. I'm just still hanging around. And a guy on the, on the four-wheeler says, a uh, local there says, you need a ride up to the, to the, he asked me who I was and what I was doing and told him. And he said, yeah, hop on. So I take the four-wheeler ride, you know, mile, mile and a half up the, up the dirt road, dogs running alongside us. It was the, it was an amazing experience. I've never had something like that uh, before. Did any of y'all have like crazy stories, weird stories associated with getting there? No. No crazy stories? All I I would say is that this year was just a little bit different with frozen conditions. So like when we went out there, we took a helicopter out and we got to the camp in early May. So Caroline and I arrived there first and we had our gear snowmobiled out there, I think in April. At least some of it. Yeah, at least some of it. And then we started slinging some of our more gear later on in May. And I just remember getting there with Caroline and we're just like, all it is is like a frozen landscape. And we're like, like literally right, white, right? It's yeah. just literally white, <laughs> frozen, nothing. It's like, where do we begin? And it's like, all right, now we got to start setting up tents. And it's like, all right, now it's cold out here. So it's like, we got to stay warm. Um, it's just a very unique experience. <laughs> You rolled in there and all of the gear that they had snowmobiled out following these big totes and snowdrifts had come and piled around it and kind of frozen it into the ground. And so we spent a lot of time with these big iron ice chippers just chipping around the gear in order to haul it out of the snow. And we sort of built a fort a little bit yeah. with these totes to kind of stay out of the wind and cook food. And it was an interesting first night out there, but I'm glad Glad we were together. <laughs> were you, so uh, Jacob and Caroline, y'all were the first two there? Mm-hmm. Just you two? Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so when you get there, there's no structure. There's, it's, because it's all torn down at the at the uh, end of the of the previous season. But, but this year was even a little bit more different because it had that um, pretty substantial, um, I, don't, I don't know, what was the proper meteorological term? Cyclone or? It was a typhoon. Typhoon, typhoon that had washed anything that was there pretty much away, right? Yeah. So we typically have, uh, we'll take apart any of the wooden structures that we build and screw them together and um, secure them very tightly uh, to the to the ground. There, we we anchor them down. Um, And this year, just had significant storms and washed all that infrastructure away. So 
We were bare bones starting out this year. And so you stayed in tents. Did y'all did you have tents that you put up that first that first night? You, yeah. So, okay. So you did have a little bit of a um, little bit of protection, but you mm-hmm. didn't have like a communal area where you would eat or anything of that nature yet. That that came later, right? We call those the weather ports, right? Yeah, we had our tote fort. <laughs> that was comfortable enough, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and so how long did it take you, Jacob, before y'all when y'all arrived, before you before other people joined you? And and I guess like how long was it before you felt like you had things set up that you that you were a little more comfortable. You had the weather. How long did it take to get the weather port assembled? How long were you out there and with just minimum supplies? Well, I guess they so Jordan, Lydia, and Laura came the day after, and we all started to put up the rest of the tents and kind of set up our gear and organize it. But we were waiting for the uh, snow and ice to melt, especially since uh, the typhoon brought over all this water on the land. So we were like, okay, so how do where where are we going to put these weather ports so it doesn't sink into the ground? So like we're trying to figure out, waiting to see what areas are the best to to set up these weather ports. So it was a couple weeks until we had a comfortable weather port seating. So we were kind of hanging out with, with tents for a little bit and just doing our work from there on out. And then we started to set it all up. And so Jordan, you'd been there how many years? I've been um, working on Yukon Delta. That was my fifth summer. Um, but I've been working at the Tataco camp. That was only my second. And so what are, I mean, how do you describe those challenges to people? Like, uh, because you y'all had to helicopter in, right? And so then I guess Thomas and Madeline and I were the first to boat in. You can't boat in until the river thaws. Um, and so the timing, that's why I was saying if, you, if you're if you a person that likes a very rigid and predictable schedule, this this place isn't going to work for you because we didn't we didn't know uh, if the motor was going to start on the, on the outboard motor whenever we got there. We weren't exactly sure. I don't think we were exactly sure where the boat was or what condition it was going to be in or if we would be able to get it in the waters. I mean, there was a lot of unknowns. I'm I'm like, is this normal that you arrive at a place like this and you've got so many unanswered questions? And I think it is, right, Jordan? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's pretty normal. I mean, I think there were a handful of additional uncertainties associated with the flooding from that previous fall. Um, you know, typically we do have the floors out there for our weather port tents. So it's, you know, the setup's a little more streamlined. And, you know, typically we can get our boats um, we keep them stored near Chivac upside down. And I think what happened when the flooding came in near Chivac is they got knocked off of the logs that we keep them on and then they filled up with water and that water froze. So they were like completely frozen to the ground. So we couldn't get them out in the spring. So, um, you know, I mean, it's there's usually a lot of uncertainties and it's, you know, plan for, it's hard to keep to any plan. And, you know, the plan's usually something along the lines of hurry up and get it done and then wait. You know, that's a common uh, phrase we use, but... Yeah, I'll say this this summer, I mean, especially when we got out there in the spring, it you know, it did it only took it took us maybe like four or five days to get the main weather port set up. But, you know, I have to give everyone credit here because we spent at least one to two of those days chipping out a twelve foot by twenty foot rectangle in the ice. Um, with <laughs> with just heavy metal bars just chipping away because we didn't want to build the floor on the ice so it didn't melt. The ice didn't melt underneath it and then it's just raised up. So I to throw that out there. That was a lot of work, a long time of just banging a metal rod against the ice just to chip it up. 
100% yeah, so- our, b- our best bonding moment was then. Like, we all got together <laughs> and we're just chipping really away was. at this ice. We're like, we got to make this area clear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Jacob, too, with his fire background. He was really wielding that hatchet, man. He was going to town. Or the axe. <laughs> it was well done. You know, the the other thing about the... So the, the boat ride that we took from Chivac to the camp, I, I want to say... I want to say it took us about... I want to say about six hours, but that's, it's not because we were like six hours of boating. It was like maybe two or three hours of boating and then maybe three hours of waiting because it's the tide cycle also that you have to work around, right? And it's um, that, again, another thing that was just totally foreign to me whenever I was asking Thomas about, well, how long is it going to take us to get out there? And he said, well, there's a shortcut if it's thawed. And if we can, if the water's right, we can probably get out there in two and a half, maybe three hours. But it also, if the shortcut is still frozen in, and if we don't hit the tides right, it could be like seven hours. <laughs> and so it was more like seven hours. And we actually ended up having to wait out in the bay for the water to, I think, recede a little bit because it was really high whenever we got to the, uh, almost got to camp. I don't know how long we stayed out there in the boat, an hour and a half or something, just sitting there, right? And y'all saw us sitting yep. out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was worried you guys were stuck. <laughs> I was trying to find ways to cross the river to get to you, and I'm like, ah, oh, they should be okay. We're keeping an eye on you. We saw some waving. We're like, it, it looks all right. <laughs> yeah, so we had but, to just find the main... The, and the issue there is you have to stay in the river channel, right? Otherwise, you run the risk of running aground. And when the, when the tide is high, it's very difficult to know exactly where the river channel is. And so the tide was high, and so... We tried to navigate through an area that we thought was deep, but we quickly realized that we were not in the river channel. So we had to just go back out until we found it for sure. And we just had to wait, wait on the tide to go out so that the river channel could become a little bit more defined. And then that led us right into the camp, which is right along the Tataka River. Um, And it's, yeah, so obviously no running water, uh, no indoor um, toilets, plumbing, uh, had an outhouse uh, that is, of course, a really unique system of, of working that, you know, and I don't know if we want to get into all of that. We can. Um, but that was one of the first questions I asked because I knew you had a system. It's like, okay, well, how does the outhouse work, right? And, and and there was. There was a system for that. And so, all right. So, let's see. Any other fun stories from, from setup? I do want to transition here in a moment about, like, the actual day-to-day research and the things that y'all were doing. Any other fun stories that you want to make sure we cover with regard to arrival and setup? Yep. Jacob's got, Jacob has one. I have one. Okay. We had, like, I guess in the, within the first, was it a couple of weeks, we had, like, some pretty good, like, wind storms. So, just dealing with the wind and just, like, having to manage, like, tents in those conditions is remarkable like we have to make sure that structures are still standing like things fell over so it's like we had to manage to like try to get those things going back up and like there's so many uncertainties that come with like remote field conditions it's crazy um but i guess like the one moment that i was thinking of is that we when you're talking about the outhouse we had our outhouse that we just set up and then like the next few days it was fell over so it's like we had to manage (laughs) that and set that all back up and i think that was a bonding moment for a lot of us there as well so yeah you know, I, I it probably let's, our listeners, I'm sure, are going to be like, "Yes, talk about the outhouse. We want to know how that works." You know? <laughs> and so, so the rules were pretty simple. You know, it's like, um, okay, so there's the outhouse. You go in the outhouse, and there is literally a there's a bench. There's a hole cut in it. I do like the did like the addition of the of the the toilet seat. You know, just sat was just uh, luxury. Uh, yep, yeah, just on this plywood 
bench, had a whole cut in the plywood bench, and then, of course, there's a toilet seat, right? And so the rule was you only do number two in the outhouse. If you got to do number one, you go behind your tent, and you had to go... <laughs> Jacob's just closing his eyes and shaking his head. I can't believe that we're going here. But it's, I mean, it's one of those things. It's a basic function of of, of us as humans. And it's like, you got to figure that out. And so the rule was go behind your tent to do number one. Just make sure and the tents are spread out. And so you figure the things out, right? Uh, the other thing is, you know, there had a, the, the, in, ingenuity or things you discovered or figured out over the years. So you do number two, and then you've got this Tupperware, this Rubbermaid container of leaves, and you spread leaves on it, and then you burn the toilet paper in the little coffee can. It was a really, it's an amazing, um, amazingly efficient way of doing things. Now, the one thing that I did not and appreciate y'all sparing me this, did not have to partake in was the periodic emptying of the Rubbermaid, uh, or the big, the, the big tote, right? So, yeah. Not the best of camp chores. Yeah. You have to get rid of that. And so, but you got to do all that stuff and you figure it out. Uh, water you, you, you brought in in, well, no, tell me about the water. Remind me of that, like for drinking. Yeah. The water, we, we end up, um, hauling a lot of it from town on snow machines. So we fill up 15 gallon plastic containers, like almost all the way to leave a little room for freeze thaw when it goes out in the, in the spring. Um, we also, while we were there, we didn't have, we had a lot of ice, but we didn't have a lot of snow, but we did manage to, um, collect quite a bit of snow from the river and, um, put it in empty totes. And we use that for drinking or cooking and stuff too. So mostly we haul water from town, but we do try to use as much snow melt as we can. So when we say remote, we mean, we mean remote, way out there at the very edge. Um, and so I was I wanting I was wanting to go somewhere else, I guess, with regard to the to the remoteness. And I, I guess what we'll do is we'll just we'll talk a little bit about the research now um, and and what your daily. Uh, activities were. So when you first arrived, obviously you set up camp. How long before, uh, Laura, I'll direct this question to you. How long before the birds started to show up? Oh my God. I don't even remember. Let's <laughs> see. Well, like, I feel like the river didn't even thaw out to the end of May, but maybe like a week or two after we got there, we started. Maybe we found our first nest. Is that correct, Jordan? I feel like I'd be remembering that wrong. I want to say... Um... So the first nest, we got out there to camp around May 5th or so. And I think that the first nest we found was on May 21st. So we were out there for quite a while waiting. The birds started to show up um, and they were just kind of prospecting and waiting. Um, We took a while for the landscape to thaw. And then once all the ice thaws, um, you know, the brant are mostly nesting around these tundra ponds and lakes. And once all the ice on there thaws, all those areas are submerged for a few days until it starts to drain off. So... It took a little while for nest sites to become available. But yeah, I think, you know, the first one we found was about May 21st. And then they initiated fairly rapidly after that. And then Laura, I guess, describe the first things that you did and trying to find the the nest. Just give people an idea of what that entailed. I mean, it's a lot of walking, right? But just for um, on a typical day, Early on when you're looking for nests, I guess up through hatch, what what did that look like? I guess um, my I guess the technique I used was looking to see where the parents are and if you can kind of spot them from a distance where they're hanging out. 
you might have an idea that that is probably where um, some nests might be. And they do kind of nest in, in colonies, right? So you do have to like figure out which parents go to which nest. And yeah, so a lot of them nested, like Jordan was saying, right next to water. But there was also um, a site we had across the river and that was, it just looked very different from um, the more Southern por- portion of our study area in that that was very like muddy and even more flat and didn't have so many of those um, ponds for them to nest to nest at. So I guess really just looking at their behavior was um, my biggest key in to figure out where these nests are. Because but it, yeah, they can be well hidden and down or like just like in some some vegetation or something. I guess it as the season went on, their their nests became more defined and easier to pick out. Because this this is a very flat landscape, right? And so Caroline <laughs> described that landscape, described the vegetation because Laura, I'm trying to get people give people a mental image. It's very flat. You can see the birds. There's birds all over the landscape. And so what you're describing there is you would walk and you would see these birds and you would watch their behavior and try to determine if they're nesting and if they're, you know, look for their, look for them kind of, um, well, I guess early on they weren't necessarily incubating, right? So you're just kind of looking for little um, hummocks or little humps or, or any other kind of indication of a, of a nest. But, but Caroline, sort of describe that landscape for people so they can try to imagine what it looks like. Yeah, um. When you say Alaska, most people think about mountains initially. Um, you're thinking about a pretty, a lot of topography. And, you know, this is a river delta, so it's incredibly flat. Even from the Midwest, it's incredibly flat. So, I mean, you can, and what Laura's describing across the river, an area we call the Cash Tut, which, because it's sitting between the Kashunik and the Tatakok River, and it's a little bit more low-lying. It floods at high tide. Um, you have these little grass islands that kind of scatter the landscape, but by and large, it's mostly mud, but I mean, you can see almost all the way across it. It's incredibly flat. These nests stick out quite a bit once they get enough down there. And I mean, once they really start going and a lot of these pairs start arriving and nesting, it can get pretty chaotic in these colonies. Um, I bring this up to tell the story of when Mike was up here helping us find nests. He was incredibly helpful and just helping us. So you start to get into these colonies and once you're in there, you're this big animal and all of these birds kind of start scattering from their nests and they're running around and they're defending their nests really fiercely, but a lot of them will flee. And you have to try to keep track of which pair is attached to which nest, um, especially if they're marked. And so I'd have Mike looking at two different pairs and attaching them to nests while I'm working up another nest we just found. Um, or Laura and I would work together as a team sometimes and do that. Um, but I should say that Laura and Jordan were the ones that were mostly responsible for this area at the KT where it's incredibly dense nesting. They did most of that themselves, which is really hard. So kudos to them for being able to kind of assign all of these pairs to all these nests in these really dense flat colonies because they are, I mean, it goes a little bananas up there once you start monkeying around um, in those nests. It's hard to keep everybody straight. But yeah, to your point, it's, it's a super unique landscape, super, super flat, muddy, grass islands, birds everywhere. It was, it blew my mind when I got there and you could see all of these brant and you could walk within, 
well, if they're nesting and if it's a hen that doesn't want to get off the nest, you can literally <laughs> go right up to her. We have some video. It's the other thing that I did. I took a lot of videos, a lot of photos. I think that everybody here got tired of me um, saying, sorry, I'm just doing some more video. <laughs> so we're going to be putting a little bit of that video out and hopefully folks will see about the time that we release this episode, folks will get a, get a better idea of what that landscape looks like, what some of the research activities entailed. And it just blew my mind that the number of birds and their behaviors and, and how they weren't flying away from, from us the way and weren't as, as frightened off at great distances from our human presence the way many others are in, in other locations. Uh, and I also did, I, I mean, I appreciated that you appreciate that you appreciated the work that I was doing. I did get the feeling early on that maybe y'all thought I was just going to show up and, and just kind of walk around and watch y'all do things. But I'm like, no, I, I came here to work. Put me to work. You got right in there. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and I don't get a chance to do that very often. So if I get to a research camp, I love doing it. And so I'm like, put me to work. Tell me what to do. So that was, I appreciated that. Appreciated y'all's welcoming me into the, the, uh, the research team there for a short period of time. That was wonderful. And let's see, uh, we've got, we'll, we'll get to some research questions here in a moment. Before we get to the break, Lydia, you are, I did pick up that you're a really big birder. And <laughs> that landscape has some birds that that I had never seen before. And so I want to get you to describe some of the more unique or identify some of the more unique bird species or more iconic bird species of that, of that geography. And in particular, were there any that you found that were particularly exciting for you? Yeah, I, I just went over my my list, my list of um, the time up there. I think um, that I saw about 60 or 70 different species in total and like 40 of them were brand new for me. So... Uh, I was really excited. I I think some really spectacular ones, of course, the spectacled eider, they're pretty common up in that area, but anywhere else, you're not going to see them anywhere. And they're so unique looking. They've got these like green, this green headpiece, and then they've got these big glasses looking markings on them. And they're just, they're very unique looking duck. I really enjoyed seeing them. And the common eiders, they were out there as well, kind of funny looking, black, white, and green made the funniest noises. I, I like to call them the clown ducks. They just, they're just, they're just goofy. And we saw some king eiders. I think there were two times we saw some king eiders. They were, they were uh, a rare treat, but, um, and they're even more colorful and spectacular with their blues. So yeah, all these ducks, they're, they're coming in. They're usually far out at sea. You'll see them on the coast, far out in the distance swimming, but they're all coming in and, uh, lay in their nests so you can get real up close to them and see all see all that. Uh, what about some of the, like the, yeah. uh, the long-tailed Jaeger, parasitic Jaeger, Jaeger, some of those birds, maybe non-waterfowl species sure. that, that really stood out for you? Yeah, the Jaegers were really cool. Um, they were very aggressive and uh, I, I never saw them go after any eggs or chicks, um, which I hear they can do, but I, I definitely saw a lot of them swooping um, gulls and the gulls were really aggressive towards them, but these Jaegers were just so maneuverable and agile. They were just ducking and weaving. Uh, the Jaegers. What about uh, Arctic terns? What about oh, Arctic terns? Are there any Arctic terns yeah, there? Yeah, I guess there were a few out there. Um, I yeah. asked that question because I think Jacob gets what I what I was going up for. There was a every time I left the weather port, heading to my tent, I would get ten yards in in the direction of my tent. 
Here it comes. Here, I could see it get off. The, I don't know if it was on the nest over there. I never went over there, but so predictable. It would come and just harass me. And eventually it, it did get far enough along, I guess, agitated enough that it started hitting me on the head. And I think it did, I think it did poop on me once. I think the last day it finally pooped on me. That's a, it's one of the hazards, right? Yeah, I think those Arctic terns are one of the one of the most aggressive birds out there, and you were the the lucky one to be have the tent closest to their little nest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get to choose your tent or choose where you want your tent or, or something of that nature. And I guess I, 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 I chose, and my choice gave me a certain outcome. But it was cool. The other, so the trade off there was, I guess, I got to uh, my tent was within in about. 10 feet, 15 feet of a nesting pintail. So that was cool. She was just, she stayed right there. And then I think we'd wake up in the mornings to cackling geese, walking through camp, um, feeding on the grass there in in camp. And then there was a a nesting long-tailed duck within about 30 to 50 yards of camp. Absolutely remarkable landscape. Bird life is is pretty incredible. Lots of shorebirds and other things of that nature. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of the other experiences there. Right now, I think we want to take a break and then we'll come back. And I think what I'll do when we come back is Jordan, Caroline, I'll ask you all to talk about your research a little bit. Some of the questions that you're trying to answer, where you are in your research. And we will continue on with some fun stories that uh, that happened. I have a few of my own. I don't know. <laughs> I have a few of my own. So one particularly memorable. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll come back and, and rejoin the conversation. Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you in a bit. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlantSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.
Everybody, welcome back. Mike Brazier here, and we're continuing our conversation about uh, a research camp up on the YK Delta, the Tataco uh, River Camp, where a long-term study of Brant and other waterfowl. We have five people here joining us, uh, Jordan, Jacob, Lydia, Laura, and Caroline. They were there this summer, and I had the pleasure of joining them for a few days, and so we're, we're uh we're recounting some of our stories and experiences. Right now, I want to get Jordan to talk about sort of the big research questions that he's trying to answer with his PhD research, and then we'll go to Carolyn. So, Jordan? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, during my PhD right now, we're, um, we're mostly focused on identifying um, the demographic consequences of differing migration strategies among brands. So, uh, some work from, I think, like the around 2010 showed that an increasing proportion of the brand population is wintering as far north as Eisenbeck Lagoon, when traditionally they used to migrate all the way down to the Baja Peninsula down in Mexico. Um, so we're interested in identifing individuals that are doing so, migra- or short-stopping migration, I should say, in Eisenbeck. And we're using MODIS technology to start to get at that. So it's essentially a passive radio telemetry program where there's a collaborative network of towers distributed throughout, throughout much of the world, but especially in North America. Um, where if a bird flies past it, we're able to know which bird and when it did. Um, so we're identifying where birds are wintering using MODIS technology and then relating that to their subsequent um, vital rates and demography to see if there's a cost associated with short-stopping migration in Eisenbeck. So Jordan, one thing that I guess I wanted to clarify, you know, a lot of a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with our um, the GPS tracking devices and things of that nature uh, that we use for mallards and pintails and white-fronted geese and others. But you're not what you're describing there with the modus. That's not GPS tracking. That's not the. That's not that kind of device, right? No, it's a it's a passive radio telemetry device, and they're actually embedded into a um, a tarsal band. So it's like similar in size to the plastic tarsal bands that we have been putting on Brant for the duration of the study, which are around like two and a half centimeters tall. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a mu- it's I think, much smaller than like the traditional like backpack mounted transmitters that are frequently used. And then Carolyn, your research uh, sort of lay out some of the questions that you're trying to address. You and Jordan are working closely and sharing data, but uh, from your particular study, what are you looking at? Yeah, we do get to work together a lot. It's really fun. So I am focused a little bit more on some really specific demographic questions with this population. Um, So I'm using all this marker capture data, only the marker capture stuff, and also um, hunter-reported banding data of uh, hunter-harvested banded birds to kind of get at the probability that birds are dying from harvest um, versus dying from other stuff. Um, I think mostly associated with habitat degradation. And then I'm also getting at some questions to do with breeding. So um, what their breeding probability is year to year, depending on whether or not they bred the year prior, which can kind of get at some life history type questions. And what I'm really aiming to explore is how climate change and how changes to their habitat that they're really reliant on um, could be affecting these kind of small, smaller scale demographic processes that can scale up to the population abundance. Um and then, you know, ultimately sort of trying to get at how we could potentially manage this population better in terms of uh, harvest regulations to kind of account for how climate might affect things like their breeding probability in the future. And, and so the the data that you're using comes from those individually marked hens, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the males as well. Yeah. So we mark um, males and females. 
So I'm using all of that data. So the data from when we mark them initially um, to when we're reciting them during nesting and when they're raising their broods. Um, and really importantly, I also am using data from hunter harvested banded birds um, from when they report those to the bird banding lab. That really helps us get at how often they're being harvested and um, how often they survive the year. You know, a lot of people would be listening to this episode and they maybe they've they've seen or have been fortunate enough to to harvest a, a brant that has one of those tarsal leg bands. They're typically typically at least at that if y'all's site, they're black with white lettering. Is that right? Uh-huh. But there yellow. were some others, there are other colors, and those allow you to identify an individual bird from a bit of a distance with with a spotting scope or binoculars. And that's what a lot of the work that y'all did um, yeah. as you're walking out throughout that 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 nesting colony that uh, Caroline you were talking about earlier but it was but every now and then you see one that's of a different color like a blue or something of that nature and I remember whenever we did that y'all would see a blue one that was particularly exciting so tell me about that uh, I guess Caroline yeah um honestly Jordan might know a little bit more about this but whenever we see something that's not yellow or black um, sometimes we'll see blue bands which are typically banded in Canada it's not the most reliable indicator of where they were banded, but, you know, sometimes we'll see green ones, which I think means uh, Cold Bay, Eisenbeck. No, Jordan, you're shaking your head. Those are up on the north slope of Alaska. North slope. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a better question for Jordan. But every now and then we'll get a funky <laughs> color um, that can kind of clue us in on where they might have been banded. Jordan, anything to add? Uh, no, not much. I mean, we mostly see, we see a lot of green banded birds because um, sometimes those are birds that are banded uh, as molt migrants up in uh, coastal Alaska. So we see quite a few of those. Um, we see a lot of males of those too, because often those are also banded as um, juveniles up there and males sometimes will disperse to Tataco if they mate with a Tataco breeding female. So we see a lot of green bands. We see occasionally others. Um, but yeah, and, and our project itself, I mean, we've gone through a handful of uh, of color combinations ranging from black and white, which is the primary, to white bands with blue lettering and yellow bands with black lettering. And I think there were a couple others in there in the past few years. And now we're starting to, you know, think about what's next. You know, we, um, yeah, the project's been going on for a long time and, and, uh, we have a large sample of marked birds. So we run out of band and character combinations fairly quickly now. And Jordan, where are you, uh, in terms of completing your, your PhD? I'm in my, uh, I just completed my third semester. So I'm, you know, working on ironing out, you know, a little bit more of the exact research questions. And we're starting to get into some of the data analyses. And um, I just completed coursework, which was great. So yeah, so we're moving along. And Caroline? Yeah, so I am almost done crossing my fingers. Supposed to be done in May, will be done in May. So we're, we're getting there. Yeah. So I'm sort of starting to look ahead to next steps. Really, really honored to have worked on this project thus far. It's going to be really hard to leave it. Are you going to be able to go back next summer? I am hoping. I'm really, really hoping. If I'm not doing field work for whatever I do next, I will definitely be bothering Dave Coons, who's the current PI, or Jordan, just to get me up there for banding or something, just to get back on the Delta. Convince them that they need your help. I agree. Yeah. Sounds like you might not know exactly yet what your next step is. Whenever we were talking, yeah, last summer or earlier this summer, you weren't certain. You had a few things in mind. Any decisions there? I am applying to PhD programs. Oh, I have just applied, so I've not heard anything back yet. Fingers crossed. But I'm doing my best to try and find a way to keep working on these coastal Alaskan systems um, 
hopefully with waterfowl, I'd love to keep working on brant, but there, I mean, there's such an abundance of species up here and it's such a unique environment that I think there's a lot to be learned um, just from the general ecology of these birds. Uh, a lot of really cool questions that you can answer, especially with these long-term data sets. So really, really pushing to try and find somebody that can advise a project staying, staying nearby or within the same system. And so, Laura, we heard about your next steps. Uh, Jacob, do you have you identified anything yet? Sort of. I'm still working on finding a, a good graduate program, but otherwise I'm finding up backup tech opportunities as well. Um, but I also applied for the National Science Foundation uh, Graduate Research Fellowships Program, um, which was exciting because I was able to work with uh, Dr. Dave Coons, Lisa Aubrey, Thomas Ricci, and Ben Seniger on kind of creating a, a research plan for myself and looking at um, community-level interactions with some of the research that I've been doing up into Taco as well. So I'm just looking to expand that and I won't know the results of that until March. So just trying to figure out what's next. Well, best of luck on on finding a, a place there for your next steps. I, I know you will. I know you'll be fantastic at whatever you do. Lydia, you might've said it to the outset, but I cannot recall. Do you have, where are you going next? Yeah. Uh, well, for this winter, spring, summer, I've got a couple technician positions lined up, more uh, some duck banding down in Arkansas. Then I'll be going out. Oh, I might end up. Is that who's that with? Oh, uh, that's with uh, Osborne. Yes, UAM Osborne. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, I'm, I might end up seeing you. Okay. Well, I'll keep we get over there. We get over there to assist occasionally, and so if you find yourself in Memphis or want to come over to Memphis to National Headquarters, definitely give me a call. Yeah. Or shoot me an email. Uh, there might be an interest in um. Maybe a graduate program for me there as well. I know he he brought up some ideas. We had a little chat. So that could be in the future for me. Um, after that, I'd go over on the East Coast and um, do some more banding and radio telemetry on uh, wood ducks and mergansers. Get in touch with the people, University of Delaware, and maybe I'm kind of just shopping around and uh, kind of... Yeah, well, that's what you got to yeah. do, right? That That's what you have to do for sure. Talk to these professors. Yeah, so that's my plan. Very good. You know, and I, we could we could talk for another hour on sort of this the research that we that y'all did, uh, the specific activities involved in day to day research, in, in the day to day activities, finding nests, marking nests, collecting all the data. Uh, we will have some videos that will will summarize some of that, and so we'll be putting those out. Um, and if, either on if not on the Ducks Unlimited platform on my Instagram or a few others, so so folks can just kind of look and, and try to find those. Uh, about the time this episode is out, we'll try to make uh, make sure those are those are out there. And so you can learn a little bit more about what it looked like and what people did. But now I want to transition to camp life in a bit more, a bit more, um, I guess a bit, not maybe detail, but some more examples of, of camp life. You know, the one thing that I didn't mention, but people may be thinking it was one of the things that occurred to me as I was planning to go there, it's like, okay, no indoor plumbing, you know, there's an outhouse, like, what about showering? It's like, you don't shower, right? There's no shower. As long as you're out there, there's, there's no shower. So who was out there the longest without a formal shower? Who would that be? I'll put you on the spot. All right, I'll, I'll volunteer myself. I probably, yeah. I will say though, we do, um, you know, we don't have a shower, but we do, construct a wood-burning sauna. So we convert a, a, a steel drum, basically, into a wood-burning stove and burn driftwood and essentially just a wooden box to be able to um, 
essentially just sweat the dirt out, which is actually a really efficient way of getting clean. And I will, we will give Mike a shout out for that, who was instrumental in helping us build the floor for the new sauna. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the days where I think we had to, you know, half of the group had to make a run back into town. And, and it's not like 10 minutes down the road. It's like two and a half hours if you're doing, if you're doing good, making good time. So it's an all day trip there and back. And so, yeah, it's, the rest of us stayed back and, um, and yeah, put the floor together. I was happy to help. You know, that was fun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I really just, became part of camp there, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I'm just disappointed that it wasn't fully assembled by the time that I left, you know, to get to experience it. You and me that. both. Yeah, that's right, Carolyn. <laughs> you didn't get to experience it either. Because, you know, all so of the, mad about that. that was one of the casualties of the uh, of the, of the the typhoon, right? Mm-hmm. Is it 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 um, washed a lot of those materials away. And so you had to bring in a lot of uh, new materials to make the, to make the, uh, the, the sauna. Now, somebody told me that the, one of the routines is after you get out of the sauna, you go jump into the Tatakoke River. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah. some oh, yeah. days. Yeah, it depends some, on the tide. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like either, if it's really if it's really low, you don't do it because it's like super muddy or something. Is yeah, that? some people do. I I choose not to. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, it feels counterproductive when you get clean in the sauna and then you have to climb up a mud bank <laughs> to get out of the river. But yeah, when the tide's high, you know, and you're just so warm, it the jumping in the cold water feels real nice. Wow, that that's awesome. I hate I missed it. Maybe I'll get back up there some other year and, and we'll be able to do so. Uh, okay, camp life. This was, and I think I asked you all that uh, maybe uh, when we were there. It's like, what's the most memorable part of this, of this experience? And I think to a person, you said the people, the relationships that you made, the fun times you had. You know, you might, it's, it's, cramped quarters in some cases, and you learn a lot about one another. You have a lot of strange conversations. You have a lot of <laughs> honest conversations. You read weird books, right? So, <laughs> Laura, talk about the books. <laughs> Hi-ho, right? Yeah, I was like very impressed that you were so willing to read that book. Yes. <laughs> Slapstick. Um, yeah, it was very far out there. I just had found that at the thrift store. I was like, Nice. This has a clown on the cover. Like, sign me up. And it was just as bizarre as anyone could expect from a clown-covered book. Yep. And uh, yeah, I felt like it brought us closer. It was kind of like I was trying to form a book club that like half the people didn't want to be a part of. But, you know, after you read every other book on the shelf, you kind of had to turn the slapstick. So... That was a first for me, but I, I, you know, you feel like you have to become part of camp and that was almost like a ritual of, uh, you know, rite of passage in, in some respects. So, so I did my part. Um, yeah. So the morning routine, uh, Jacob, walk us through the, the, I guess the yeah daily morning routine for people. What time do you get up? What does it look like? What's the temperature? Uh, that type of stuff. Okay. So I guess Jordan usually kind of woke up first. Uh, what time? I don't know. What is it, like? What time? You was lose it track of time, right? Like like seven. Like seven. Yeah, <laughs> seven o'clock. And then so people are going to think you're lazy getting up at seven, but then you have to explain <laughs> that like you work till nine or ten at night, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different time. I'm mm-hmm. all the time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sorry. To, sorry to interrupt, Jacob. Go no, ahead. No, no. It was yeah. It's all good. Like usually we start work, you know, around ten or eleven anyway, depending on the day. Just make sure that conditions are right. And we go out there and it's all light up throughout the rest of the day as well. So we can get up a little bit later, but yeah, so Jordan would usually get up and then uh, it'd be Laura or myself hopping next and they'd have their coffee in the morning. And then Lydia would join us uh, earlier in the season. Caroline would uh, 
be joining us as well. Jordan makes a killer breakfast. So, um, yeah, the Thompson special. He, would be up <laughs> he every really morning, does. Uh, ready to make us breakfast, which was awesome. And then, uh, yeah, I would do my morning stretches, do some motivation for the day. Yeah. And then we'd all get prepared and dress up and go out in the field. So, you know, the, the, so it's, it's remote and there's no, no electricity. And I was surprised, but pleasantly so that we didn't have a generator running. It wasn't a generator, nothing of that nature. So, I mean, you did have one, I think for uses when, uh, when you needed it, but it was like fuel oil or diesel heater, right? Or for, for inside the, the weather port, the stove itself ran on propane. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. The oven and, uh, range and then the freezer all ran on propane. And and the meals were really good. You know, you think you're going to a remote location and you're going to be eating just sort of freeze-dried foods the entire time, but that wasn't it at all. You had fresh fruits, you had you had meat, and that was one of the things that we took in whenever we got to to Bethel. One of our orders was to stock up on on beef and sausage and I can't remember what other meats we we took. Eggs, um I don't remember if we took milk, but anyway, it was like you, yeah, we took in two or three coolers worth of food and the meals were great. I, I, and everybody's sitting around in a small area eating, telling stories. That was my favorite part of it as well. It's getting to spend time with y'all and listening to y'all talk about the research and talking about the analyses that you were doing, the research questions and, and particularly having, um, having Thomas there and asking him, I mean, the, the level of conversations that y'all were having about uh, the type of analyses, the type of programming. I mean, I'm just sitting back like, okay, this is all passed me by long time. It's passed me back, passed me by a long time. What was, so Caroline, what do you take away from all of that, from the, from the people, from those experiences in the, in the weather port? How, how big of a, a part of your memory was that? Oh, I mean, meal times are always my favorite outside of just like being in the field because everyone's kind of sitting down together and you have to sit still and everyone has to talk to each other. And aside from the safety concerns, the lack of internet is absolutely wonderful because no one's looking at their phone. You're talking to each other about ideas you have in the moment, things you've been thinking about in the field. And I mean, I, you get to be at these field camps with, I mean, Thomas Ricky and Jordan and Mike and Jacob and Laura and Lydia. I mean, it's it's some of the most fun conversation I've ever had. And it's some of the smartest, in some cases, conversation I've ever had. Sometimes it's real stupid. You get you get a little loopy when it's a sunlight that often. <laughs> but sometimes it can be, I mean, I've gotten a ton of ideas for my second chapter for analysis I'm currently doing, um, all for those conversations of the weather port. Just getting to have time with people like Jordan and Thomas is is invaluable. And Lydia, what about your experiences and memories of those mornings? You were a, you were a big book reader yourself. What do you take away from, from that experience? I hadn't read a book in like three or four years. I hadn't finished a book before then. And then I get up there and I plow through eight, nine different books than the whole season. So yeah, that was, that was definitely really nice. I, I haven't finished a book since either. So that was a really special time to <laughs> Just relax and read those books that I've always wanted to read. And yeah, the, the talks we'd have, always some, someone talking about something happening out, out in the field or over a game of cards or cribbage. Oh, that's just, at the end of the day, that's kind of what you look forward to. And it, it was a lot of fun, yeah. Lydia's a shark. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I wondered if you were gonna. Br- I wondered if you were gonna bring up the cards. That was a, I made myself a note. So remind me of the card games. <laughs> yes, we. I was a big fan of them. I was always up for it. Um, some people were a little less, <laughs> less uh, happy to take on the cards, but there was always someone who would. So we'd play different things. Uh, if, if everyone wanted to play, we'd play blackball. You can get everyone in on that. If you had four people, you could play hearts or something. Or if you're alone, play solitaire or cribbage. Cribbage can have... I, I've never played cribbage before, but that was a fun little game. And we ended up playing that quite a bit and a lot of fun. Yeah, I had never played blackball. I had I had never heard of it. Uh, I had never played cribbage. I knew about it and I was taught both of those games. And it's for me, it was a wonderful experience because of all of those things that you... Like back here, for all of us, I'm sure our lives are super hectic, and you've got a yet yeah, a dozen, three dozen different things that you're juggling in all of these different places, and you've got deadlines and timelines for things. But up there, there's no internet, there's no email, there's no social media. It's like I'm just gonna think about the work that I've got to do here, and I'm gonna read a book, and I'm gonna play cards, and I'm enjoy the company that I have. Uh, that. To me, uh, this was uh, the first field camp of this remoteness that I've ever been to, and there are others out there, but this it, it's different. It's different from any of the other field camps that I've been to because at the others, you've got TV or you've got internet, and it doesn't do for the people and the relationships what that setting, the remote setting um, does. That's what I took away from it. Jordan, you've been there, what did you say, five years? Four years. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my fifth summer doing field work up there. So apparently, you like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, my first summer up there, I worked with the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. Um, my last summer of undergraduate, so I was still um, finishing up my bachelor's degree. And yeah, I mean, I've been coming back ever since. That was 2018, and yeah, I I love the work, you know. And and I think I find a lot of value or I have found a lot of value, I should say, in, in working a lot in that system and being able to learn enough that like I can come up with a lot of really interesting questions, I think, you know, and learning a lot about what's going on and what the birds are doing and maybe what's, you know, the different things to study. So I've really benefited a lot from spending a lot of time out there. And Jordan, you'll be hiring technicians again for, for next year, right? Yep. Yeah. We're in the process of that now. Oh, Okay. Okay, yep. so I'm not. By the time this airs, that announcement and those hirings may have already occurred. But mm-hmm. I mean, what what advice would you give people that are wanting to uh, to look into this type of uh, of field work? Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest thing is is you know just to apply. Like we, you know, there's a lot of of skills I think that are useful out there that maybe like aren't traditionally put in like your classic like CV or resume when you're applying for wildlife jobs. Like, you know, if, if, if you grew up working on boats or something, or you grew up doing construction or something like that, like those, you know, in addition to being able to collect data, those skills are like really, really valuable. Um, Cause we're remote. I mean, we're reliant entirely on ourselves and I don't have like a mechanical background or anything, but I've, I've learned to <laughs> do quite a bit of maintenance on boats and and things just from necessity. So it's, you know, those kinds of skills, at least when you're thinking about pursuing jobs and if that might be of interest, you know, just marketing those types of skills is a big thing, I think. It causes, yeah. you know, applications to stand out. Anything from the rest of you? 
I guess in terms of in terms of advice for people that are that may be a little bit reluctant to do this to to commit to a remote location, a remote work, what what would you tell them? It's not as bad as it seems. From somebody that like is extroverted to a fault, I hang out with a lot of people. I'm a really social person. I was pretty horrified by the amount of isolation, but it is far and away my favorite summers. They are it's an absolutely magical place. And I think any remote location, people might feel the same. Um, just take the leap. It's really, really magical. I would agree. I would agree with that. And so speaking of magical places and favorite, one of your favorite experiences, um, any stories that we want to tell? Um, I mean, I can, I can start, y'all know what I'm going to, you know, the story that I'm going <laughs> to tell. So, <laughs> so I actually have video of this. I don't know if I'm going to put the video out there, but it was actually really funny. And, um, but nobody was, it was funny after we realized that, that everybody was safe. Right. So but the, sh- the short version of this is that, and this blew me away. So the title, um, the amplitude on the tide is what, what would you say it is? Eight feet? Is it that much? Uh, maybe feet? not quite that much. Yeah. But it's, it's a few feet. Yeah. It fluctuates quite a bit. And so you take the boat from camp across the river to the the cash tut, Caroline, that you were talking about. And so when we went over there, the the water was high. So we go out and we spend several hours searching for nest, and then we come back, and then the the boat is 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 on a mud flat. It's on the a mud bank. And so we have to turn the boat around and it's a pretty steep bank back into the river. And so we all actually, I shouldn't say we all, I you all, <laughs> I was filming. <laughs> Um, you all were turning the boat around and got it to where it was teetering and aiming down towards the, on on the bank. And so you give it one big push. And so it starts going down the bank into the water and Caroline (laughs) didn't stop. What? No, let me put it like this. Caroline, the boat was, the boat was, it appeared as though the boat was, the boat was gaining steam, gaining speed Uh as it was going down the bank, and I could see what was happening. Caroline and Laura were trying to stop it. They thought it was going to get away and go go out into the river, and we weren't going to be able to get the boat. Well, what they didn't realize was that Jordan and Thomas had tied a rope. Do you hate that I'm telling this story, Caroline? No, it's okay. Sorry. Y'all, they, had, they were hanging onto the line, and I didn't know it, and Laura didn't know it. So we were trying to keep a handle on the boat as it slid into the river, and... You know, we, to our credit, we did. We just, you know. <laughs> you got, saved the boat. You stopped yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. We just, you know, got to taste a little bit of the river in the meantime. <laughs> but we were all right. I, I was wearing hip boots, so I filled my boots. And Laura had her waders on, so she was nice and dry. And, you know, thankfully, we everyone had a handle on the boat. So it was, you know, wasn't dangerous. Everybody was fine. Um, it's just. And silly miscommunication that led to me getting real wet. <laughs> the, the silliest or the funniest part was when we were you came back up to the bank and you were standing there and you turned and looked at me and realized that I was filming it. And I think you said, oh, great. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and then Mike later emailed us a lot of the footage that he had taken and then specifically directed my PI, Dave Coons, to the video <laughs> where I like, partially dragged into the river a little bit. Yeah. Guilty. But I want to say to our credit, we kept a hand on that boat. Yes, you did. Yep. Absolutely. We did. And we have video mm-hmm. proof of it. We have video oh, yeah. proof. Commitment. Yeah. So uh stories, favorite stories from others. Caroline, what is your favorite memory? Oh man. That's it's hard. I mean Besides the people, we can't, we can't, you know, besides yeah, the people, because that's I know. 
I okay, Lydia is gonna maybe disagree <laughs> with me here, but we spent a lot of time searching the um the plots. So there are these specific plots that are um placed throughout the study area. Um, and some folks will do kind of free ranging, free roaming searching for for nests, which like uh, largely what Jacob was doing. Lydia and I had a rope and would search these plots for nests uh, systematically. And there was a couple of lots that were pretty uh, far south of where our camp was that we would go down to. And they were super, super dense and super deep in some of these little fingery lakes that were sort of throughout the area. Yeah, I don't know if she's going to agree with me, but I really liked searching those because it was it took a lot of teamwork, I think. And we really had to like work together really closely. And it was a lot of like crazy communication because as you enter these really dense plots, it's this super dense area of nests and everybody kind of goes a little crazy and there's gulls flying around. You want to make sure that you minimize predation on those nests because, you know, we're the ones that are disturbing them. So trying disturbing them as minimally as possible is really important. And also trying to keep track of everybody that's running around. And so it was really, it was a super intense part of our week every week, but I think we did a pretty good job at it. Um, and I think that that's still one of my favorite memories of plot searching down there, even though it was, I mean, it's, it was stressful and it was a pain, but I think we did a really good job. I was proud of us. Lydia, what do you think? Yeah, it was, the deep South was definitely very unique and <laughs> I did enjoy being down there and seeing everything. Yeah, it's just, it's so dense. You know, after a long day of hiking all the way down there and all these seagulls are all over the place and they're trying to eat your eggs and you don't want them to. And then all of a sudden, the rope you're pulling gets snagged and you can't get it unsnagged on all oh, these eggs. That's just the last straw. And you just, you just kind of blow yeah. a, little, a little gasket at those points. But I I look back on them fondly now and I, I they're definitely core memories now thinking back on them. So, yeah. <laughs> And I also, I want to give a shout out to, we would always see really, really cool birds way, way deep south down there. And Lydia took some really fabulous photos and videos of some of the eiders. And especially she has this picture that I hope you post someday of your red fowl rope. And it is through the scope even. It's so cool. You wrote, you were very good at that. Definitely came to light in the deep south, (laughs) as we call it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that reminds me, um, how far would you walk in a given day? Anybody have a record of that? Like when you go to the deep south, Lydia, Jacob, I think that y'all spent some time down there. Or maybe I'm misremembering exactly where it was, but what's an average length uh, amount of walking for you? I think my phone maxed out. It said about 10 miles, which people were, I'm not sure if it's totally accurate, but on the, our longest days, they were usually about 10 miles. So maybe four miles down there, four miles back and about a mile just walking in circles, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. I think a lot of it is the is the walking in circles. Because Jordan, what, how far is the, like, just as the crow flies, our furthest plot, do you think? I don't think. I, I'm... I want to say like a couple miles or so. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so I, I bet you a lot of that is... Um, is how much time you spend. Like, because, you know, <laughs> when you're doing those 50 meter radius plots, you're walking up and down the rope, halfway, the full way. And yeah, it really... It adds up rapidly. <laughs> the amount of it steps definitely feels like search like ten or so in a day. Um, so yeah, it's it that adds up quite quite quickly. Wouldn't trade the plot curve for anything though, <laughs> Lydia. I totally believe the ten miles. Okay, okay. It feels like ten miles. I, I it it does. It does. I concur. Yeah, with all that walking <laughs> yeah. on the up and down the plot rope. It's a long day, but yeah, definitely. 
of just seeing those phalaropes for the first time. Such a bright red bird, so unique. The uh, them being, I've only read about them in books, them being like the females are more colorful and they'll lay all these nests and the males incubate them. So seeing them for the first time with Caroline down in, down in the deep south, that really, that made my day for sure. It was a good one. I just remember it was also in the same area as that one female who was at like one of our last plots in the way deep south. And she was so evasive. It took us such a, yeah, it took us such a long time to get her band read. And I can't remember what it was, but I know you know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yes, she would just, she'd keep walking away and stay, I don't know how far that was, like 50 feet away at all times and always keeping her feet in the grass or under the water, never never walking on the mud, making it easy for us. No. Of course not. Yeah, she was a pain. We got her though. We did. (laughs) We did. And so Jacob, what about you? Your favorite memory or story or what do you take away? What, when you when you think back on it, what's the most again besides the people? What's the what's the story that you tell first? I don't know if there's a specific story, but I would say just the interactions with these geese are something you won't get elsewhere. They have personalities, you know. You go up and you check a nest, and you see that same goose maybe every week, and you're like, oh, yep, that's we know it's that one. I know Jordan has stories of, of some geese that are, you know, that, that will always come to him and he'd be like, oh yeah, I know that geese, that, that goose. And yeah, they're sometimes they're just characters. There was one there, like, like sometimes they get comfortable enough where you, you visit a nest enough that they're, you know, they're willing for you to check the nest and then they know that's what you're doing and then you leave and they're fine. And some of them are a little bit more, you know, defensive and yeah, you just kind of learn what, what goes with the flow with those geese. And it's, uh, that was like probably my most enjoyable part, but also it's really pretty. So like, there's a point where like, when you when the grass starts to grow, like you see a transition on this landscape. And once the grass starts to grow, it is so beautiful. And you can like lay in the grass, and enjoy those moments and like find your inner peace. I just like, I, re- I just think about us traveling on boats and going exploring and, and Caroline and Laura and I are just like laying out in the, in the grass. And yeah, those were some some great moments. And Laura, that makes me think of the, uh, maybe it was the first day that I went out in the field with y'all. Um, my favorite photo of the entire trip, I think, is of you checking the nest of a hen, of a female. Uh, you were, you had the egg in your, in your hand and she was standing right there and she was letting you know that she wasn't in, in somewhat of a, of a gentle way, but very vocal way that, that she wasn't too happy about the work that you were having to do. And so I've got this photo of you holding the egg and the, the female, with her mouth open, her, her bill open, and it was it's a pretty pretty cool photo. So what about you from your experiences and, and memories or any stories that you want to tell? Man, I've been sitting here and I have like, I can't decide between three stories. So I'm just going to tell you them all. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> so the first one is like a questionable safety story, which I, I found very funny. And, and, and was, Car- Caroline immediately <laughs> puts her, her face in her hand. So that makes me think that it might involve Caroline. <laughs> well, I actually, know this was after Caroline left. Oh, and, okay. Um, okay. And we were, it was one of the final days of just like searching everywhere for any nests we could find. And so we were all like, I was at least, Jordan and I were pretty mm-hmm. far south. And I think Jacob and Lydia were more up in the northern part. And so like that morning, we're outside and Jordan's like, 
all these geese, they're running like to the river and I don't know why they're freaking out. And he's just scanning and he sees these two giant moose in the background. And you just see like hordes of goosey families just running from these giant moose. And we're like, that is so cool. Anyways, we got work to do. We're going to like head out, get to work. This is of no concern to us. And then like, I'm all the way in the deep South and I'm like, oh, like those two figures from afar look like Jacob and Lydia. They must have met up and are talking. And I'm just going back to my like nest check business. And like these figures come closer. I'm like, oh, those are the moose. They must have literally swam across (laughs) the river and come over here. And like, they're like on the mud flats walking to the south. And I'm like, that's cool. Gonna keep doing my business. And then they just keep getting closer and closer until it's like a very uncomfortably close distance. And I remember getting my radio out and I'm like, hey guys, like what's the moose protocol for like (laughs) uncomfortably close? And like, of course my radio was just caked in mud. So they couldn't hear anything I was saying. It was just like to them probably whispers, like little, little mousy noises. And I just feel like they were like, that's nice. Yep. <laughs> I just remember Jacob being like, hey, by the way, Laura, there's there's a moose close to you right now. And I'm like, yeah, I know. What do I do? Um, and then so I just like start speed walking to my next point, cross some sloughs and stuff. And they're just like so fast. Like they cover an incredible amount of land in like such a short time. And then, but luckily, like I was like, darn it. What if they hate the color blue? I'm wearing this bright blue raincoat. I've obviously upset them. But then all of a sudden they make a beeline towards Jordan. And I'm like, great. That's not my problem anymore. Good luck, Jordan. Yeah. They were, <laughs> he was fine too, but. <laughs> yeah, I think they were they were walking up because we're the, we're the tallest things out there besides the moose. So they would get a little close and then realize, oh, I'm not, you know, going to bother with that. And then they'd turn off and they ended up just laying down on a, on a grass flat and. That's where they were the whole day, but it was a little, a little uh, unnerving to have them running towards you. It wasn't like a charge, but it was a it was a decent trot. <laughs> you Had know. you ever seen moose out there before? Yeah, we see we see a good amount every year. Um, this year we saw quite a few, but um, usually you know like two or three a year. Um, yeah, it was surprising. <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, walking out of the weather port and seeing like every goose across the river just on the mud running to the river and noticing that before two giant moose that are standing, you know, <laughs> not very far away from us. But yeah, yeah, we see them, but um, not super frequently and they're never that close. I mean, we usually see them from a distance or when we're boating to town, you know, they'll be along one of the rivers or something. But I suppose that's my other favorite memory was uh, one time Jordan and I went to Chivac And on our way back, we were able to take the shortcut. And it was just like the most beautiful experience. Um, So the shortcut is just like so windy and just amazing. And the water level is like right up like with the grass. So you're basically like swimming through this grass. And it was a beautiful blue sky day, which wasn't too common this past summer. But um it was just so cool. Like, Jordan, you're just so good at boating. And you were just <laughs> zooming down this this um, shortcut. And it was just, like, amazing. I felt like I was flying. I felt like the saltiest sea sailor there ever was. <laughs> and it was just beautiful. It's just such an uh, amazing landscape out there. And, Jordan, what about yours? Your favorite story 
uh, or memory. Uh, you've got a lot, um, <laughs> but let's just go from from this year. Yeah, I would say, you know, everyone mentioned a lot of them, but I think one of my favorite times this year was um, when we were getting, like once we got camp set up and everything, it was a huge relief. And we spent a lot of time afterwards taking walks when there was still quite a bit of ice and water on the ground. I'm basically just looking for those first nests. That's when we kind of, what we use to time our starting of data collection, I guess. And and just the opportunity to walk around when with everybody together, you know, when when there were still quite a few birds around, they're standing on the ice, you know, start learning how to read the bands. And then, you know, that day when we found the first nest was uh, was really exciting. I think, um, we, you know, we were all waiting for a few weeks. And as soon as we found it, you know, the, the excitement started of, okay, things are going to pick up now. But, um, and I remember that one being a slightly challenging one too, because these Brant, they, um, they don't start incubating until they've laid about three eggs. So once they're laying those first few eggs, they're just kind of, they lay it and they just walk around. And there's often not like a ton of down in the nest at that point. At, later on, they deposit a lot of down. There's just a thick kind of pillow of down in each nest. But until then, it's just some grass interweave with down. So you know, we found birds that they were paired up clearly. Um, they both had bands, which is what we wanted. We wanted to find the nest if they had bands. And, um, but it took us a little while, yeah, of just searching the pond, all four of us, and eventually we found it. So that was, I don't know, that moment stood out to me, the excitement of having that first nest and then things you know, starting to pick up from there. You know, we haven't even talked about what happened uh, at the, the latter part of the season. Um, right at the, right at when, when Caroline and I were leaving was the day when the first nest hatched. Thankfully, I did get to see that. Did get some photos, did get some uh, some video, and and we'll be sharing some of that as well. Uh, but that's what we've really kind of talked about, I think, or at least what I've been envisioning as I've been talking to you all, is just sort of the first half of the season. We didn't talk about the banding, that the, the web tagging that that occurs as the goslings are emerging from, from the eggs, and then the banding that occurs later in the season. Those are, I think, I remember talking to some of you, and and you said that, you know, the, the, the goslings. The goslings were what you were looking forward to the most. Maybe, Lydia, that might have been you. Did it, did it turn out to be the favorite part of the summer? Getting to getting to do the web tags on the goslings, it was definitely uh yeah definitely a highlight. I um yeah I think we each had like a little section. We had maybe a hundred or so nests that we had to check every every few days and keep uh, track of. And I remember going out, you'd check all their nests, and the very first. Uh, <laughs> I actually freaked out the first time I saw uh, one of the eggs were pipped. I called Madeline over to see what she thought, because uh, sometimes you can you can take their little foot out of just out of the egg and tag them that way, and then put them back in. I wasn't sure if I should do that or not, so I I called her over, and we were listening to these little eggs just peep peep peep, and they were trying to break out, and Mama and Dad were yelling at me, and and so I came back the next day. And it was just a full nest of all perfectly dry little babies. And it, that was just the first nest. I I tagged them all. I I did all that stuff. And that was that was a highlight is that first nest. They I think there were six or maybe even seven babies in there. It seemed like a whole bunch. And 
Uh, they were all just so nice and they just sat under my clipboard. You put the clipboard on top so they don't run away and they just sat under there so nice. It was definitely a highlight. Yes, awesome. for sure. Uh, we're going to start to close out here. Really I really appreciate y'all being on and joining, joining us. It feels like we've just kind of scratched the surface because there's so much that goes on during the summer. Uh, I mean, you're, you're there for several months doing things that very living in a place where very few people uh, ever set foot and get to experience and doing things that very few people have the opportunity to do. It's a really special place, a very special opportunity. Uh, again, I was thrilled and honored to have the opportunity to join y'all for a short period of time as a learning experience for me and getting some exposure to an environment that is so important for breeding waterfowl, not just Brant, but everything from spectacled eiders to common eiders, northern pintails. There were tons of pintails there. We even saw a few other species uh, there along the way. Uh, White-fronted geese, the, they're in abundance as well. I, I think I think what I would do is ask Jordan here. This is sort of the last thing that I'll I'll ask in terms of re, of telling us what you experienced there. But Jordan, you and I talked about this not too long ago. But it was a it was a pretty good nesting year, a pretty good recruitment year there on the on the YK Delta, right? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we. We had pretty low nesting numbers in 2022, and they definitely rebounded quite a bit to about at least like maybe 10-year average numbers, so um, consistent with what they've been, which was great. And um, yeah, I mean, nest success was really high. I honestly can't remember the, the number right now. I know we chatted about it, um, but yeah, I mean, nest success was high. Um, there weren't a lot of predators running around. The primary, primary cause of nest failure is arctic foxes and we just didn't see that many of them um yeah when we went out banding i mean there was quite a few goslings still around so it was it was a at least comparatively a pretty good year for recruitment for brant and other species too i mean even the you know we monitor emperor nests uh white front nests and cackler nests and they seem to all do well as well yeah, how could I for, for, how could I forget about the emperor geese? That was a treat as well. And I was that was that was like so the favorite my favorite or my funniest story would have been the one that I told earlier, but the favorite one, I guess, that I think about it and all the different experiences that I had or the most unique one, let me put it like that. Was when I had gone out, I believe it was the day when others had gone back to had gone back to Chivac and we had finished doing the work on the um on the floor for the sonar. Maybe we were going to start it that afternoon, but I walked south with a camera and I was laying on the ground and trying to get some photos of, I forget what it was, but um, eventually, I'll shorten this story a little bit. Eventually, a pair of emperor geese began to walk towards me. And I had made a recording earlier of a of a pair of a video recording of a pair of emperor geese as they were flying by and they were calling as they were flying. And so I thought, well, I wonder if I play this video back if the emperor geese will get curious and walk even closer to me. And sure enough, they did. I was playing the replaying the video and they had the volume up and the emperor geese were looking in that direction. And they eventually walked to within about 10 yards of me. And so I got some amazing uh, photos of those birds. That was the first time I'd been, um, I, the second time I'd seen emperor geese was in Cold Bay last year, but just an absolutely wonderful treat and experience to, to be so close to those, to those birds as well. Um, but any, any final words from any of you, any stories that, that we just have to tell? I don't necessarily have a story, but I just wanted to mention, um, 
you know, the work's been going on up there for such a long time and we have a lot of um, like diverse funding sources. So I just wanted to kind of send a thank you to, you know, everyone who makes these projects happen, which right now includes National Science Foundation, um, DU and the donator, uh, donors associated with DU, uh, the Arctic Goose Joint Venture. And then we also have a lot of really close collaborations with the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. It's been a huge help for banding operations and logistics and things. So I'd like to, you know, send a shout out to them as well. Yeah, I appreciate you doing that, Jordan. I would have been remiss in listening back to this if, if we didn't give you a chance to talk about the, the, the partners there. Anybody else in that regard that we need to acknowledge here before we, before we close out? I think it might be worth mentioning that um, this long-term project takes place on ancestral homelands of Yupik and Shigrik people. Um, we've had the opportunity to um, meet and become friends and work with a lot of the folks that live in Chivak, Alaska, um, and they're certainly worth mentioning. Their support and uh, welcome to us has been hugely like impactful on the success of our research. Um, really wonderful welcoming community, for sure. We're lucky to get to do research there. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Caroline, for sure. Anything else? Parting words. I guess I just wanted to thank you guys for, you know, helping me grow as a person and a professional. And then, you know, just leaving me with lasting, beautiful memories. And, you know, making me even (laughs) more passionate about Arctic ecosystems and all the waterfowl up there. I'm so excited for you. You get to look like Hoggles. I hope I see you guys again in the near future. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the great thing about the waterfowl community. It's pretty small. And even the wildlife uh, profession, it's 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 pretty small. Uh, you know, Jacob, you and I ran into one another at the, the Wildlife Society Conference just a little while ago, just a few months ago. So, yes, we'll definitely stay in touch. Um, and we thought this would be, appreciate each of you joining because we thought it would be a great opportunity to to shine a light on some of the work that's been been ongoing for so many years and some of the sites that are responsible for it and some of the people that are responsible for it. Uh, we don't often think about um, the work that goes in and, and pay homage in the, the way we should to the work that goes in on an annual basis um, in really any of these uh, situations, but especially the ones that are far removed from for most people's eyes and you just hear about yes it's an arctic research camp or it's a camp in in alaska and it's it's much it's much more than that it's a remarkable place it's a remarkable experience it's vital work it's been foundational to a lot of our understanding of waterfowl demographics and this was an opportunity to hear from from five people that were responsible for collecting that data managing those sites and and will continue to do so and helping us learn more about waterfowl and the effective management of that resource so Thanks to each of you for being here with us. It's been great, and I look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Mike. A special thanks to Jordan Thompson, Jacob Tepsa, Lydia Martin, Caroline Blommel, and Laura Wallace for joining us today. Uh, we we c- can't say enough good things about the work that they've done this year and for being the next generation of waterfowl and wildlife professionals and managers. And I certainly look forward to, to working with them as we go forward. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great job that he does with these episodes and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your, for your support of the podcast and for your commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.